When we talk about the current realities of work and how it's changing, there's one solution we keep coming back to. It will be essential for today's workers to learn new skills and likely find new jobs entirely. And as daunting as that may sound, this isn't the first time that the American worker has had to adapt to get ready for the workforce of the future. With that in mind, what lessons can we learn from the Great Recession to help everyone rebound more quickly? Figuring out why our work becomes such a central part of our identity might be the right place to start. This is Work in Progress. Keeping an American business alive, it's just not as easy anymore. I watch too much go wrong. There are not a lot of choices. Even in a political environment in which Republicans and Democrats agree on almost nothing else in terms of economic policy, they all agree that job retraining is a good idea. There's opportunities here that are untapped. You have to go get them. I'm just hoping that something will eventually crop up and get my life started. Welcome to Work in Progress, a LinkedIn podcast about the future of the working world. I'm your host, Caroline Fairchild. And I'm Chip Cutter, talking to people across the country about work and how we all earn a living today. The end of the year is fast approaching, and this will be our final episode of Work in Progress for 2017. Throughout the season, we've discussed some of the biggest issues facing the world of work, whether it's robots and automation taking over certain jobs or the rise of the gig economy. Each episode brought up a lot of unanswered questions about what the country's relationship will really look like with work moving forward. Right. And I know, Caroline, this is something that we talk a lot in between tapings, and it's that we really love this subject matter. This is something that's incredibly important to the future of the economy. And talking with these guests, we really kind of come away with more questions and more curiosity about some of the problems they brought up and their kind of ideas for how we solve them. Right. I feel like with each episode, we brought on a guest hoping to come to an answer to a certain problem, but often just left with more questions than we had in the beginning. So for the final episode of the year, we really wanted to discuss a plausible solution to getting the economy ready for the future of work. And after going back through all of our interviews from the year, we realized that there really was one idea that whether you're talking about blue collar work or white collar work, whether the show was about self-driving cars or universal basic income, Practically every one of our guests mentioned this in some way. The big area is around training and skill development. How are we helping people learn how to learn? And what are we doing to make sure that the skills that we're learning are the right skills for the future? We almost need to rethink our whole skilling ecosystem to make sure that not only is there closer alignment between what employers need and what the training institutions can provide, but also in a way that keeps up with the rate of evolution in the technologies themselves. We need to invest in the infrastructure to train our workforce. um, And we should think about how we can actually use technology to do that, right? The process of retraining for something else is not cost-free, right? I think that we need to have the largest employers in the country be doing more to either provide retraining uh, support for their employees or access to whatever these uh, sort of next set of jobs are that might be likely based on the skill set of an individual. 
So as you just heard, whether it was the CEO of TaskRabbit, Stacey Brown Philpot, talking to us about independent workers, or it was the head of the McKinsey Global Institute, James Manika, talking to us about the future of manufacturing, everyone thinks retraining is the solution to getting the workforce ready for the jobs of the future. And it's so true. And sometimes I think we become numb to this. We just hear retraining over and over again. It's one of the few bipartisan solutions to the future of work that's really out there. But that said, it brings up a natural question, and that's whether retraining actually works. Our guest this week has spent a lot of time looking into this. Amy Goldstein has been a staff writer for 30 years at The Washington Post, where much of her work has focused on social policies. Among her awards, she shared in the 2002 Pulitzer Prize for National Reporting. And her book that came out this year is Janesville, an American Story. It won the FT and McKinsey Business Book of the Year. Amy, thanks so much for joining us, and welcome to Work in Progress. Pleasure to be with you. So, Amy, your book focuses on the closing in late 2008 of the oldest operating GM plant in the country, this 4.8 million square foot facility that had been making cars and trucks since 1923. The last model that rolled off the line was a Chevy Tahoe, and workers were making $28 an hour. So tell us a little bit about this town, Janesville, the southern Wisconsin can-do city, home of House Speaker Paul Ryan. What did this kind of work mean to the people who live there? Well, when I began to think about finding a way to tell the story of what really happens on the ground when good jobs goes away, I was looking for a community to focus on that had had working-class good wage jobs for a long time. So this had really become central to the culture of this community, and suddenly these jobs disappeared. And what I tried to understand was what this General Motors work had meant to people and what its sudden vanishing had meant to people. And these were jobs that, as you say, had paid at the end $28 an hour. They provided great benefits. Um, one of my favorites is that um, they provided uh, days off in hunting season in the fall. Um, and not only had these provided um, good work to thousands of people who were General Motors employees, but the fact that this big auto plant was there had also spawned a whole set of supplier companies other factories, companies that were driving the vehicles out of the plant. So there were thousands of other jobs whose existence hinged on the presence of the plant. And when GM closed, these other jobs went away as well. And the combination of those thousands of jobs disappearing right in the heart of the Great Recession, 2008-2009, meant that there were other small businesses in this community of Janesville that couldn't keep going either. Right. And you kind of frame this very nicely in your in your book about kind of talking about this was a place that always kind of knew how to evolve. It was always a place where it felt like if there was a temporary plant closing, they would come back, they'd be able to get back on their feet. And so what? give us a sense for how people responded when they realized they had to switch occupations, that this kind of idea, this is how their life would go, turned out to no longer be a reality. Now, with respect to Janesville itself, one of the things that struck me when I first arrived in town and kept coming back over a period of years was how much denial there was. People just had a very hard and understandable time recognizing that these jobs were not going to come back. Uh, there was a big effort by the city of Janesville, the state of Wisconsin, the county it's in. It was a bipartisan effort with both Democratic and Republican political leaders to try to persuade General Motors to give the Janesville factory another product to manufacture. And they really thought this was going to work. It had always worked before, that a product would leave, another one would come in. 
And it didn't work, but it took a very long time, I mean, years for people to really begin to understand that they couldn't just uh, wait it out and that people who particularly have been General Motors employees themselves, um, as a part to some of the people who'd worked as suppliers, who were getting uh, uh, United Auto Workers extra layoff benefit for a couple years, that eventually was going to run out before uh, any jobs came back and jobs weren't going to come back. So it took people quite a while to get their heads around the fact that this time was going to be different. Well, and and as they started to get their heads around it, people started to kind of realize, I may need additional skills. I may need to do something that I haven't done before. Why was that so tough? And what was that process like for people who wanted to get new skills, thought they could switch occupations? Well, I was very interested in the question of if I was going to be looking at what happened to people when they lost their jobs, the sequel question seemed to me, what do we as a country recommend people do to try to get back to work? And I was very struck that even in a political environment in which Republicans and Democrats have agree on almost nothing else in terms of economic policy, they all agree that job retraining is a good idea. So I chose this community to look at in part because they have a small technical college called Black Hawk Technical College um, that received a couple thousand dislocated factory workers in the few years after these jobs vanished. So I worked hard as part of the research for my book to understand what it was like both for the people who were going back to school and for college, the college itself, which was trying to figure out how to help these people, many of whom were in their 30s and 40s and hadn't been in school for perhaps half their lives at that point, may not have been good students or like school in the first place, which is why they went directly into uh, well-paying factory work. And suddenly their whole identities were turned upside down and they were having to figure out how to study again. Um, they're also having to try to figure out what to do next in terms of what to study. And um, these were all surprisingly hard things for people to do. I should say that Black Hawk Tech, which I knew nothing about, obviously, before I arrived in Janesville to begin looking at this community and trying to understand it, I came to think just really knocked itself out in trying to help these laid-off factory workers. They were very quick to discover what the deficits were that these people came with. For instance, some of the instructors and administrators of Black Hawk Tech were just shocked to discover that these people did not, for the most part, have very good uh, computer skills. So they quickly started computer boot camps to try to teach people how to use Word, just basic things, so that they could write papers on a word processing system, which they'd never had to do as part of their factory work. They provided uh, tutorials and study skills just to try to be nurturing. They provided summer get-to-know-you picnics for these laid-off workers and their families, just to make the whole notion of being on an academic environment, an academic environment, um, less threatening. So they did an awful lot to try to help these people. And there were some people who I've interviewed, who I've gotten to know pretty well, who actually did well back in school. But on balance, it's just such a hard thing to do, and not everybody fared well. So let's talk about that. The federal government spends hundreds of millions annually on retraining programs, and there's actually very little data to measure their effectiveness. So you actually, as part of this project, decided to go out and with help from academics and some labor economists, you did a quantitative study that judged the retraining efforts in Janesville. And what you found from 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 this, I thought was 
utterly surprising. I worked with three different labor economists, and we put together some data sets from the Wisconsin state government looking at people's unemployment wages and their incomes, um, and then uh, getting some data from the college itself. And we just mushed all this data together. And what we were interested in was how much people have been working, and if they were working, how much they have been earning just before the Great Recession began, so back in, say, 2007. And then what were their wages and working hours like a few years after, and 2011 was the uh, data that we looked at. So this was a few years after all these jobs had disappeared. And what we found was completely counterintuitive, and it's certainly counter to the um, common wisdom that job retraining is the route back to good work and good pay. And what we found was that if you look between the previous uh, time, at the beginning, uh, before the recession began, and afterwards, people who had retrained overall were less likely to have work. If they had worked, they were less likely to be working all four seasons of the year. And the difference between their pay before the recession and a few years afterwards was a bigger slide downwards than compared with people who had not gone back to school. Amy, what I find so interesting about this discussion is that it's not just politicians who are deeming retraining as this silver bullet that's going to help the economy moving forward as jobs progress and change. Throughout the course of this season, we've talked to leaders across industries who think of retraining as the solution, the way that we're going to get the workforce ready for the jobs of the future. Recently, we spoke to Amr Awadallah. He is the CTO and co-founder of Cloudera, a cloud computing company here in Silicon Valley. And he had some interesting things to say about retraining. The job dynamic will change significantly in the next 10 to 20 years because we are building systems now that will be able to do human jobs. The implications of that is in the future, artificial intelligence and these kind of systems we're building, they're not just going to replace our jobs, but they will replace a big function of our decision-making. A lot of our decisions, like a lawyer changing a sentence in a, in a document, will be automated. And we will need to learn to evolve our intellectual ability to solve much higher level problems and evolve our ability to learn new skills. A lawyer might need to learn how to shift to be a doctor. Well, I know it sounds very hard to do, but they will need to have the ability. So these people complaining about losing their jobs, uh, number one, they should stop complaining. Number two, they should look for solutions that they can do themselves to make themselves fit in the world that we're in. So Amr, being the entrepreneur that he is, his take was, look, the country's changing, jobs are changing, you need to change too. How do you react to something like that from a leader who's built his own company and is saying that this is just something that the entire workforce needs to be ready for? Well, he's talking about the loss or the evolution of jobs as a result of automation or increases in the prevalence of artificial intelligence. I'm looking at people needing to change jobs because the jobs just stopped existing. One way or another, you're still losing jobs. And uh, I don't think that what I found in the context of southern Wisconsin uh, and the few years after the worst economic times this history has had since the Great Depression of the 1930s is an indictment uh, widely of job retraining. But I think it does cause people to think about whether it's easy to train for and get other jobs in a place and at a time when new jobs aren't coming into existence. It's part of the problem that communities, sometimes they want to help 
business leaders, political leaders, they want to be able to do something as jobs shift, whether that's because of a reason, as you, as you showed, because this GM plant went away, or maybe in the future, if it's something because automation is just rendering some roles obsolete. Is it just people want to have a solution, and it's sometimes easier to say, hey, go back to school, go to class, than it is to do what they really need, which is just to create more jobs? Well, I think there's a lot of truth to that, and I'll give you an analogy. Another piece of common wisdom that people sometimes say is that, well, if jobs have gone away where you live, then why don't you just move to a place where there are more jobs? And one of the things I found among the people who I've gotten to know in Janesville is that, you know, at least in that community, people feel such a sense of rootedness. I mean, if you think about this auto plant that provided the best working class jobs in town for several generations, that means that families are likely to have extended families all around them. It's a place where they feel as if they belong. So the notion that people were just going to uproot and move to parts of the country where jobs were easier to find just didn't seem very appealing to a lot of people. That's not to say that nobody left, but that wasn't what most people I got to know wanted to do. So throughout your reporting, you spoke to many people who lost their jobs. Can you talk to us a little bit about how emotionally trying and exhausting that experience is? That's a really important question. I think that we might generally not quite understand how painful it is to lose work. It's very, very personal. That's at least what I've come to understand. And as part of the research for this book, um, I worked with a couple of University of Wisconsin academics on a survey just of this part of their state of Wisconsin to see what people's economic experiences and attitudes were like. And one of the things that we tried to understand from this survey was what it was like for people who said that they or someone in their home had lost work during these five years. About a third of the people who answered our survey said that they had lost work um, or someone in their household had. There's a lot of people. And we asked questions like, have you lost sleep? About half said that they had. We asked, are you avoiding social situations? Um, Do you have strain in your family that you hadn't had before? Um, Lots of people said that those things were true of them. But the question that really broke my heart was one that asked, have you felt ashamed or embarrassed to be out of work? And over half of the people said that they had. And that just so struck me because it suggested that even when you're losing work at a time when thousands of your neighbors are losing the same kind of jobs, at a time when the country is in a very bad shape and jobs are disappearing of all kinds in all kinds of communities, the loss of your work still feels very, very personal. I think that's one of the things I, I took from this, too, is that the people who did find work, they're often making sometimes half of what they were making before. Um, do you think that is a something we need to think about more broadly nationally, too? Well, I think you raise a pretty profound question. Um, you know, whether you're talking about James or Wisconsin or the nation, the unemployment rate in this country has re- improved dramatically since uh, – even a few years after the Great Recession. The Great Recession officially ended the middle of 2009. Unemployment stayed kind of high for a few years after that. It's now way down. In Janesville itself, the county, which Janesville is the county seat in Wisconsin, the unemployment rate shot up to over 13% in early 2009. It's now closer to 4% looks like a big improvement, and it is in that one sense. But if you look at what people are earning, it's nothing like what they used to make. So, you know, let me just tell you about one family that I got to know pretty well over the course of the years I was uh, researching this book. 
family is called the Whitaker family. And Jared Whitaker worked uh, for a number of years at General Motors. He was a multi-generation General Motors family, like lots of people in town. And uh, he um, is married. His wife, is um, Tammy, was working a part-time job. They had three young kids. Two of them were twins. And when the GM jobs all went away, Jared, like many people, just sort of hung out thinking that, you know, this was good. He was getting what's called subpay, supplemental union benefits, uh, to help cushion things for a while. And he went back to school very briefly to train to become a utility worker. Uh, he lasted a grand total of a couple weeks. So he left school uh, very quickly, and uh, unlike some people who took transfers to start commuting to other GM plants that were far away, hundreds of miles away, Jared didn't want to leave his family. So he took a pretty small buyout from General Motors that gave him a couple thousand dollars and six extra months of health benefits. That was the real appeal of the six extra months of health benefits. And he began over the next several years bouncing in and out of bad pay jobs, um, different kinds of work that were paying $12, $13, $14 an hour. His wife, Tammy, was working now two part-time jobs, both making about minimum wage. And when I started to get to know the family, their twin daughters were high school seniors. And between them, they were working five part-time jobs and every now and then slipping their parents quietly some money to help pay the bills. And what is your take on how we can get educators to work more closely with, say, private employers as well as, you know, the government to make sure that the systems in place for the education system are supporting the jobs that are actually in the market? We spoke extensively with James Manika, who's the chairman of the McKinsey Global Institute, about how there is some differences in these systems and what is being taught may not be the jobs that are actually in place in the companies that these workers can actually get employed. How do we bridge that gap? What did you find in your reporting? Well, one of the things that really struck me um, as I got to know better what was happening in Janesville is that the kinds of theories that are around uh, among people such as you're talking about, or federal policymakers, were actually in practice in this part of Wisconsin. Um, There is, as you say, a big idea that colleges, particularly ones that are doing vocational training, and their local business community should get together and really puzzle through what kind of jobs to encourage people to train for. Well, it so happens that in Wisconsin, the technical college is required to have local business advisory communities. So Black Hawk Tech in Janesville had already been meeting with people in the community. Um, the head of the local job center um, Uh, All over the country, there are these workforce development boards that are kind of ground zero for where people show up when they uh, have lost their work and don't know what to do. Um, So this job center in Janesville, the guy who ran that, who's one of the uh, men whose stories runs uh, runs through the book, was all the time talking with local business leaders. So they really were being very attentive to what they thought um, people should study to be well-positioned to get jobs. In this case, the problem wasn't a lack of uh, coordination. The problem was that there was a wrong expectation about how quickly the economy would get better. And there's a point in the story where this head of the job center um, was telling me that he was actually feeling very guilty because he had gone in the premise that jobs would come back in Janesville about the pace at which jobs have come back in this country after previous recessions. And they didn't this time. So he was feeling guilty that people had lost jobs. He and his staff had encouraged people to go back to school. And now they were facing what he called a double whammy. 
Well, Amy, what you've talked about here and what you found in your book, I think, is going to be just something that we'll be talking about for many years to come as the jobs around us, the, the way that we think about careers, our pathways to get to them, continue to shift. So thanks so much for joining us, and thanks for being part of the show. Thanks for having me. That was Amy Goldstein, the author of Janesville and a staff writer for The Washington Post, talking to us about the reasons why retraining that seemingly silver bullet solution is a lot more challenging than we think. Caroline, I think when we look at what Amy found in her reporting on Janesville and what we just hear talking to people across the country is that work is part of your identity. And a lot of these people weren't necessarily ready for what was to come after they had to give up a career that they had thought they would do their whole lives. They did everything right. They got these new skills. They got the education. And then it just didn't work out for them as they planned. And this is something that I've been thinking about all season. Each time one of our guests has brought up this notion of retraining, it somewhat glosses over the fact that so many people get up in the morning and are enthusiastic about the jobs that they're going to. It's such a central part of their identity. So I think moving forward, we really need to think about in these retraining programs how people are getting enthusiastic about the jobs of the future. Sure, it's what they need to do to make an income, but is it something that they really are excited about? And I don't think you can gloss over that. Right. It's typically one of the first questions someone asks when they meet you. What do you do? Who are you? This is part of your worth, part of who you are as a person, what defines you. And so knowing that that's going to need to shift, that's going to need to keep changing, and we'll need to be okay with that, I think that's just something that politicians, our business leaders just need to make sure it gets across to the workforce, that this is the reality, and let's try to prepare for it as much as we can. And as we start to work on 2018 season, we want to hear from you. What topics do you want us to explore? What problems are you facing at work that you think we need to learn more about? Let us know on LinkedIn using hashtag work in progress and follow at LinkedIn editors on Twitter and LinkedIn for updates on next year's season. Also, feel free to reach out to me on Twitter at Seafair1 or Chip at Chip Cutter. Thanks for listening. We'll see you in 2018. This week's show was produced by Florencia Ariando, Wes Wingo, and David Pond. We'll see you again soon. <laughs>